Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast, the podcast dedicated to simplifying the commercial real estate industry for the masses. Each week, we sit down with industry experts to dissect the many facets of commercial real estate and extract valuable lessons you can apply to your business. Whether you're a new or seasoned business owner or investor, the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast will be your go-to resource for all your commercial real estate needs. Now, here are your hosts, Rafael Collazo and Jeff Walston. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Collazo, here with my co-host, Jeff Walston. How's it going, my friend? It's going great. We are Friday into the week. Uh, it was a very busy week, and I'm grateful to be at the tail end of it. Uh, and then I'm enjoying uh, the actual snow that we got here in Louisville, Kentucky, for all the listeners who don't know where we're at. But uh, what about you, Rafael? How are you Yeah. Doing? Great, great. Yeah, it snowed a little bit this morning. I, I don't think it's going to stick around, though. It it's, looks like we're going to heat up a little bit tomorrow, which will probably get rid of the snow. And, and it's it's pretty common in Louisville for it to snow like a day or two, and then it just is gone within a few, you know, a few days. So yeah. we'll take we'll enjoy the snow while we can. But speaking of, you know, just just great conversation, we actually had someone who I've interviewed before that I really admire as, as a commercial real estate professional. Her name is Beth Azor. Uh, she's the CEO of uh, Azor Advisory. Uh, down in uh, South Florida. Um, she is just an impressive individual. And, you know, not only is she a leasing broker and owns a company that helps uh, her, primarily her assets lease uh, shopping centers, she owns, along with partners, six shopping centers in South Florida. And so she really is an expert in the retail industry. And throughout our podcast episode, we actually talked about a variety of different things. One being what got her interested in commercial real estate because she originally didn't start in the, the, the commercial real estate business. She was on the residential front and then eventually transitioned into the commercial real estate business and eventually became president of the company that, that she was at previously because of her performance and success within the business. And uh, she also talked a little bit about her early struggles in the business. As we know, the brokerage business can be quite uh, you know, difficult, especially as you first get started, there's a lot of ebbs and flows. And she talked about some of the ways that she was able to mitigate some of that and, and help her as she got going within her career. Uh, she, we also talked about uh, some of the common pitfalls, in particular on the business owner end, as to what they, they fail to understand when they go into these leasing situations for these, these spaces, because it's not all about, you know, what am I going to pay on a monthly basis from the rent? You got to really factor in uh, your entire business plan and determine whether or not it's even feasible for you to move into the space and that you're able going to be able to survive in that particular location. And we also talked about some of the pitfalls investors make when they're analyzing these opportunities, because it's not only just about the X's and O's, the numbers, there's, there's underlying uh, market factors that you need to consider when you're making these, these investments to, to, to ensure that you're actually going to have success long-term. And then finally, we talked about some of the impacts that social media has had on her career. I mean, she's, she's, coaching people across the country, uh, uh, at least regarding leasing space within shopping centers. And social media has been a key piece to be able to expand that business for her and really reach a, a large audience. And I can tell you from personal experience, I've been following her for quite some time. Uh, she does have a very giving heart and she really gives a significant amount of value and information via her social platform. So you have, if you're not following her, I highly encourage you to do so. So that's just some of the things that you can expect within this episode. Jeff, what do you, what do you have to add? Just at Beth, she's highly knowledgeable and experienced and uh i, I like her ways uh, of going around and looking at a deal differently than what most people would do um in the commercial real estate as far as i know um and so it it, it actually opened my eyes a little bit and i think it will 
help you guys as well. So I'm excited for you to take a listen to Beth. So oh, for sure. If, and, if, and, and I think this, this specifically will help you if you're looking to get into the investment space as it pertains to shopping centers. And also if you're in the retail space and the brokerage side, I think this is a game changing type of podcast episode. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive around right the podcast. Well, welcome, Beth. Great to see you this fine morning. Thank you for having me, Raphael. I'm excited to be here. Oh, yeah, welcome. Yeah, and, and Beth's tuning in. Are you, you're in Florida currently? Or are you? Were you in? I saw you were in Cleveland recently, but uh, the, the the temperature difference must be pretty stark, I imagine. So. Yes. Yes. And hi, Jeff. Uh, yes. Yesterday morning, I left Cleveland. The temperature was six, and it and they said it felt like minus nine. And today I am uh, in 78 degrees. I'm more, I'm happier. I imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're somewhere in the middle. I think we're in like the 30 to 35 range right now, but coming from a warm weather climate, I, I used to live in Puerto Rico for a couple of years. And I mean, the, the 80 to 90 is where I like to live. So it's kind of, well, it's, it's supposed to be 38 here tomorrow morning and Sunday morning. So I, yesterday when I got home from Cleveland, I made sure my fireplace works because I only use it a couple of times a year. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. one thing I want to do in particular, when we first start this, this podcast is to learn a little bit more about the person across the table from us. And if you guys haven't followed Beth on LinkedIn or other social media platforms, you highly should. I mean, she's provides a wealth of knowledge pertaining to the retail industry. And she actually even coaches people on the leasing side. So if you're a leasing broker, she provides invaluable tips to accelerate your, your, your leasing career. But, uh, you know, I just gave a quick backdrop, but if you could provide maybe a little bit more of an in-depth, uh, back background on who you are, I think that'd be great for our audience. Absolutely. So I've been doing this for 36 years uh, since I was 26. So that makes me 61. So uh, I, I like to say I'm well healed. Uh, I own six shopping centers in South Florida. And I would say 60 to 70% of my world is running those six deals. You know, I collect the rent, I lease the space, I prospect, I, I work on refinances. And my goal is to buy one deal every two years. Uh, so the rest of the time, what I do is I coach leasing agents how to fill vacancies faster. Companies like Kimco, Phillips Edison, DLC, they hire me and I'll go do a workshop and we'll do a canvassing day. I'm doing this next week in Fort Myers for a client where maybe they have a property that has uh, more vacancy than they want. And I'll we'll go and I'll do a three hour workshop and then we'll literally hit the ground running. We'll go out into the market and I usually do competitions. If, it, if the team's large enough next week, I think I have a team of 10. So we'll split up in teams and I will rotate with the teams. And we do some advanced DMing on Instagram and Facebook, which I'm sure we'll get into mm -hmm. to kind of let the community know we're coming. So and I just love uh, leasing space and I love prospecting for leasing space. And then uh, sometimes I get uh, clients to hire me. Like right now, I'm working on a project with the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He owns a mall in Cleveland, and it is adjacent to the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse where the NBA playoffs will be in three weeks. So seven months ago, uh, I started taking leasing this 17% occupied mall, and I'm excited to say we've signed 13 leases, uh, long-term leases, and three or four pop-ups. And, um, and I went into Cleveland, I was thinking, you know, after 36 years, did I just get lucky over all those years? Or did I just happen to be part of properties that were in really good markets? Like, you know, I wonder, sometimes you, you feel like, am I 
good or am I lucky? But I, I went into Cleveland not knowing a soul and their goal was that I would sign five leases. And so we're very excited at the success we've had. And I've probably spoken to over 600 people in the Cleveland market, entrepreneurs. That's phenomenal. Nice. And, and, and yeah. I think it just goes to show the optimism that people have, in particular after these two years of just dealing with, you know, being pent up in their houses and, you know, having restrictions on businesses. I mean, I talk to business owners on a regular basis and they can't wait for 2022. They, I think there's a, there's a lot of optimism going into the year and I think it's going to bode well for, you know, of the business community, regardless of what city you're in. So, um, but that's great to hear Absolutely. you say, that's great to hear you in, regarding the, the Cleveland community. That that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a lot of fun. So you, I know you said you've been in the business for a couple of decades now. Um, uh, what actually got you interested and started into commercial real estate? So my parents were in residential and my, I wanted to do special events. My goal in life was to run the Olympics one day. I love logistics and marketing and all that stuff. So when I graduated at, from Florida State University, I got a job as the special events coordinator at the American Heart Association in Miami. And I was making a whopping $11,000 a year, Jeff. So that is like 30 today. So yeah. I couldn't pay my bills with that. So since I had my license since I was 18 years old, because for many of your audience, if you have parents that are in residential real estate, they pretty much make you everyone get their licenses when they turn 18. So I, during college, had done um, sat open houses for them. And during college summers had worked in the real estate um, area. So while I was doing my job at the Heart Association, on the weekends, I would do real estate. And loved my job at the heart, but after two years, I went from 11 to 23 grand. And the weekend real estate job really started taking off and I was making more money on the weekend job than I was making with the not-for-profit. So I felt that I had to flip-flop because my, my executive director at the heart one day came to me and they said, your ambition exceeds us. <laughs> I'm the executive director and I don't make much more than you do. So why don't you just volunteer for us and go do the real estate thing, you know, full-time, which was great advice, which is what I did. And, it, but I had been working for a residential company and I went from working seven days a week for two years to sitting in a trailer, waiting for people to come in and sell them a house. And I was miserable. And I, and I, and I would go home crying every night saying, I gave up the job I loved for money. Like, you know, it, I was very upset. And so a woman I met in that job she freelanced on the weekends and helped us on the weekends, but her job during the week was being a leasing agent for a shopping center developer that did grocery anchored properties. And she said, you should get into commercial. And my idea of commercial back then was selling land. And I'm like, ah, this, that's more boring than this. And she said, no, no, there's this thing called le retail leasing. And people build shopping centers, developers build shopping centers, and then you help people fulfill their American dream by helping them have a bricks and mortar location. And I went sold, you know, where do I sign up? And I found, and she said, well, there's a company in Miami called Terranova. They have a training program. You should call them. And I called them and the hiring person was a member of my sorority at Florida State. And she said, you're hired, just come meet the boss. And I was there 18 years. I grew through the program. I was a rookie in the training program. And the last six years with the company, I was the president. That's, Ooh, wow, nice. that's, that's a phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal story. And, and one thing that I kind of want to touch on too is, is, is pertaining to the, the ability to get that opportunity. 
uh, and leveraging your network in order to do so. Because, you know, I, I come from a software background. I was an engineer by trade and I had no experience in the commercial real estate business, had, didn't know a soul in my local market. I moved here about four and a half years ago. And so when I was looking to the potentially get into the commercial space, like I didn't even know where to start. Like with residential real estate, you go to a brokerage and they pretty much are like, hey, come on board. It doesn't even matter what, you know, if you have a pulse, you know, we're, we're going to get you in here. But with commercial, it's a lot more siloed and kind of harder to, to, to get into. And so, you know, leveraging that network, I run a local meetup in town and I just so happened to meet an agent there uh, that that had done a deal with a, the local brokers that I eventually joined and they had done a deal on, a, on, a, on an industrial warehouse or something like that. And so, you know, I, I told her, hey, I'm looking to get into commercial real estate. And she's like, oh, I just did a deal with, you know, so-and-so, why not, why don't you sit down for coffee? And that's what happened. And so I got I leveraged that relationship and I was able to get into the brokerage space. But, you know, I think I've had a lot of people saying, ask me, especially the, on the residential side, they're looking to transition. Like, how do I get into the business? And a lot of it is it's all relationships. So you have to leverage that network. However it is. I mean, if you're part of an organization, tell people in your organization, Hey, I'm looking to get into commercial real estate. If you go to a meetup group, just let people know about it on a regular basis. And eventually something's going to stick and utilize LinkedIn too, which we'll get into later, which you do a phenomenal job of. So. And networking is so important. And what I, what I always recommend for people that want to go from residential to commercial, as I say, excuse me, shadow people. So call people, you know, use your network and call and say, Hey, can I come shadow you in retail leasing a couple hours a day? You or someone on your team or industrial or multifamily or office. And then you'll have collected a bunch of people. And if you show up on time and you're asked good questions and you look professional, you know, they're not going to hire you if they don't know who you are. But if you just say, hey, I've got my license. I mean, a lot of people, especially now are hiring and looking for good people. And Back when I started, no one trained. Terranova was like the only group. Now, a lot of people do training. So I think just like what you said is network until I tell I tell my friends who want to invest in properties, I say, tell everyone you want to invest. Someone's going to know someone. So definitely no. And, and Jeff and I are at that point right now where we're looking to get into our first commercial deal. And so we're doing the same thing. We're telling all the people, hey, look, we're looking for opportunities and we're trying to leverage even like this podcast, for example, where we have, you know, a section within our podcast where we tell people that we're interested in looking at these type of opportunities. If you have anything, let us know. And even if it doesn't lead anywhere, it builds that connection. So maybe two, three, five, ten 10 years down the road, they remember us and say, Oh, you know, I, I remember their podcast or I've been listening to their podcast and you know, we're, they were interested in maybe these, in this opportunity, maybe I'll just pass it along to them and see if there's a way to partner or, you know, just, you know, whatever else. So. Absolutely. So, yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about was pertaining to your early, early time in your career, because again, the commercial real estate business is a brutal business. I mean, it's a, you know, commission only business. Uh, there's ebbs and flows in the economy that you have to ride out and, you know, you can be riding really high and then you could be riding really low. And so that's one of the things that I kind of want to talk to you about is the early struggles, because, you know, we do have a lot of people who listen uh, to this podcast who are earlier in their career and they're going through the process of building up their book of business and, you know, uh, riding the riding the waves, as they, as they say. So could you kind of tell us a little bit about maybe some of your early struggles uh, in the business and how you're able to overcome them? Absolutely. So I think the most important thing that that is when you're new is to have a control of one side or the other, right? Either try to get with a company that has listings so that you can work those listings or get with a company that has tenant rep 
clients that you can help work on with tenant rep clients and partner with people, right? So go to the, the a, a company or work with a company. Maybe you're you're there and go to the senior people and say, "Can I help you?" Because even though you may not get paid, I I also tell everyone when I first went to Terranova. I couldn't do real estate on the weekends because I had to put my license with them. And you're only allowed in Florida to have your license with one group. So I worked at Macy's two nights a week and on the weekends. So I, I recommend everyone in the beginning to get a side job because that takes the pressure off of you on the whole commission only thing. Cause I was commission only. So, and, and when you are commission only, you get desperate. And when you're desperate, that comes across in the conversations and people don't, it's not easy to close deals when they, when they sense the desperation. So I would highly recommend a side hustle, a, you know, side job, you know, my, both my boys have one works in a restaurant and one does music, but they both drive for DoorDash. They both have side hustles. And, and depending on what they've, how they've spent their money for the week depends on how much, you know, they've made 400 bucks in a week in like two days on in DoorDash. So, so I, first of all, I highly recommend a side hustle or a side job to take the pressure off. I've had kids that valet parked cars, they were bartenders, that. So then having a, a control of one side or the other, because when you're a broker and you're new, trying to Show, represent a client to look for space, but you don't have an exclusive with the client, you're going to get screwed. And that has happened to me. I got hired early on and, and I thought I had an exclusive without Back Steakhouse. And I was new in the business and I was really excited. What happened was, is I did have a listing that we did the first Outback in South Florida. And the guy, the, the Outback guy, they had only had seven in Tampa. This was the, their eighth one. And he was working with a residential real estate agent from Tampa to South Florida. He comes to South Florida. I do the deal with him. And he goes, I really like you. You're retail. You know a lot of people down here. We're going to hire you. I said, okay, great. But I need an exclusive. I don't want to run around town looking for look sites for you. And then, you know, you're not loyal to me. And he goes, absolutely. And he signs the exclusive that... You know, I've got the exclusive for South Florida. And so I go out and I'm working on th three or four deals. I get a call from a big broker in town screaming at me. How dare you tell people you're representing Outback? That's my client. You know, what are you doing? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I have a signed exclusive because I have a signed exclusive. And I go, you, fa you fax me yours and I'll fax you mine. And we did. And the guy signed an exclusive with both of us, which so wow. we both quit. And we vowed to never do business with this guy again. He ended up leaving out back and he did another, a cup, a bagel thing. They Boston market. I think he called it because are you going to do, they called me about doing Boston market. I said, I'm not doing Boston market. So, so, and now I'm very, still very good friends with that guy, that, but that's the kind of stuff that you think I thought I had a control with the listing, but I didn't. And that's a problem because if you don't have control, if you don't have a client who trusts you, all that work you're going to put in is going to be a waste, right? I ended up doing four deals with Outback, which was phenomenal. It was my third year in the business, which is great. But but too many, I've heard too many stories about how you know the ground moves on from under you because you think you have a listing or you think the guy's going to be loyal to you, and you go spend hours upon hours upon hours all for it to be for not. So, so I think that my first piece of advice is 
having control of one side or the other. And then the other piece is, um, you know, focusing on fill, filling that that need, whether it's finding the location or filling the vacancy. Uh, I think a lot, some of your listeners, if they know me, have heard this story about how I was I, I was arrogant in the beginning. So here I am three years in the business and I think I've got, now I've got 17 shopping center listings. I'm the retail leasing queen. I'm canvassing. I'm making like the first six figure income in my life. You know, I'm 28 years old and I get a call one day from a guy and it's clear it's on a cell phone. And, and, you know, you guys were probably weren't even born back then that early, but you know, I should, that should have been my first key that there's this, you know, scratchy, this is definitely a cell phone, but no, I was very arrogant, arrogant. And the guy says, hi, I want to, I'm interested in that space you have at that property on Lake Worth Road. I'm like, yeah, I go 6,000 square feet. He goes, great. I go, what do you want to do? And he goes, I'm going to do a video store. And I'm like, video store. I like pretty much laughed on the phone. I said, I have 17 shopping centers. 16 of them have video stores and they're all 1200 square feet. What could you possibly want with 6,000? We're not going to split it. He goes, no, no, I want all 6,000. He goes, I'm going to do a prototype and I'm going to, you know, franchise it. And I'm like, sure. And I literally said, sir, I'm sure you are, but you know, we're not going to do a video store for 6,000 square feet. It's got plumbing for electrical and um, it's got plumbing and electrical. We want to put in a restaurant. So he goes, well, do me a favor. I really like the spot. It's got perfect visibility right on the street. Can you just take down my name and number? And if your boss changes his mind, will you let me know? And I said, sure. And I, back then we didn't have a CRM. We had like prospect sheets. And I write down, he goes, my name is Wayne Heisinger. <laughs> and he was the founder of Blockbuster Video. So my, the biggest lesson I learned, and then a year later, so back then you, you put prospect sheets, I, I put video store, huh, like, huh. I post, I put it in my manual file folder, which is like every month, it was like this, this expandable accordion file. So the ones that were not serious, you would just put the sheets in the back of, like a year later. And a year later, I pull out the sheet and see Wayne Heisinger. And, um, and my biggest lesson was I didn't ask questions. So had I said to this prospect, even though I thought this idea was stupid, you know, who was I? If I said, well, sir, what do you do now? And he said, well, I run waste management. Like, I probably would have shut him the space and done the first blockbuster video store, but I didn't ask him the questions. And it's really important to ask questions for, from your prospects because you never know who's on the other, other side of the call. Yeah. And I, I, that's a great advice. And I think that's where the, 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 the mentorship and, and training piece comes into play because I, I you, a lot of times you just don't even know what to ask. And, and, and even from uh, filtering through prospects, because I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I've worked with people before where, you know, I didn't properly vet them well enough. And then I work with them forever and we just don't get a deal done. I remember uh, Jeff knows I was working with a lady yeah. uh, to, to open a bakery and, and I really wanted her to succeed. And I wanted her, you know, to find a bakery. And we kept on hitting hurdle after hurdle after hurdle because she wasn't fully in line and understanding what it takes to open a bakery. And neither was I, because I, that's not my business. And so, you know, I, I learned a lot through that process and we worked together for almost two years and nothing happened. So you know, you learn from those experiences. Uh, and now I'm, I'm much more careful about who I start to work with because it, it, the vetting process is key. Otherwise, you're going to be spinning your wheels for a while. But I did learn a lot of lessons from it. I, I, I don't want to underestimate how much I learned from that experience. But for those of you guys who are listening, be sure to really just ask the right questions. And I think that's first and foremost starts with mentorship and, and learning uh, from someone who's done it a lot before. So 
And you guys said you guys have a treasure chest. I have a sheet of paper that has a list of things I ask when people call me, which I'm happy to include in your treasure chest of tools. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that would be huge. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I like how you said, you know, go to a more experienced person, uh, ask, can I help you? And can I learn from you? Like, I, I want to shadow you and, you know, essentially just creating a mentor on yourself and picking that person. Um, that's how, that's how I actually learned a lot of uh, general contracting in the commercial space. And, uh, it's just asking questions to somebody who's been doing it for 25 plus years. And I'm now hitting my 21st year, but, uh, the 25, you know, 21st, 21 years ago, I didn't have any experience with that. So I was always the person asking questions, the young kid, like, Hey, uh, you know, I, can you teach me? I want to walk behind you and I want to learn what's that, what's this. And, uh, it does, it does tremendously help. So I love and, that piece of advice. And you, and you applied so, the lessons applied you learned them. too, right? Cause in, with Jeff, he started building houses when he was 16. So like he, yeah. you know, he started, I was going to say when, when he said he was in the business 21 years, I'm like, well, did you start when you were nine? I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. 16 professionally. Uh, but actually I started, uh, my very first house, uh, with help was when I was 13. Uh, and then I started 16 was professionally. So, uh, yeah, it's my 21st year. So, uh, in construction. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, speaking of that, like asking questions and stuff, what are some hurdles that like business owners make when they're analyzing these retail opportunities in the spaces? Can you elaborate on some? So the store owners, what are yeah. the hurdles? Yeah. So, yeah. so not understanding zoning. Probably the most important thing, Jeff, and you know this, right, is they yeah. underestimate the capital invested to go in the store. That's the yeah. number one thing, right? So I'll have people call me that are unsophisticated and they want to do a startup. And I've done some startups that have worked famously, but many times the startups don't ever end up starting up because they just, they have pie in the sky dreams, right? So yeah. I'll say, do you, have you done a business plan? No, I haven't done a business plan. Well, um, it'd be probably good for you to do that. You want it, You said you wanted to open a bakery. Yes, I do. Do you need a grease trap and a hood? Um, in this municipality, you do. Any food operation, you need to have a grease trap and a hood. Well, I don't need a grease trap and a hood. I'm a bakery. Well, I understand. But in this municipality, if you yeah. serve food, they're going to require you to have it, even if you don't need it for what you're producing. So under them understanding and then understanding that the grease trap could be 15 or 20,000. So I'll say, well, what are your startup costs? Oh, 30 grand. Well, that won't even get you the grease trap in the hood, right? So, yeah. or the second bathroom or so some leasing agents that aren't leasing 50 properties, right? Can take the time and help educate some people. Um, but I think that it's very important for, for business owners to interview other bakeries Right. And, and they if they want to open a bakery in South Florida and they don't want to tell their secret concept, then they could go to Tampa or they could go to Atlanta or they could go online or, or you know, there's so many they could go on Clubhouse and and say, who owns bakeries? I need help. So I think that doing the research and talking to other how much, you know, so many times, a lot of times franchisees will buy a franchise and they think that's it right? I'm, I'm great. I'm golden. The franchisor is going to help me open my business. They're going to give me a general contractor. They're going to build out the store and all of the franchises do a million dollars, you know, and it's a, a framing store. And I'm like, yeah. well, I, you know, so 
just really doing their research on the numbers because that, you know, I had a, I had a Miami Dolphins, two Miami Dolphins. I bought a center once and they owned a smoothie store and the, the sales were like 20,000 a month. Terrible. And the rent, the, the occupancy costs for rent versus sales were, was like 40%. So I knew that they, this was a hurting business. So they want to go to sell their smoothie restaurant to a locksmith and his wife, a teacher. And I say, how much are they going to sell it to you for? 66,000. I go, how much do you have in your savings? 66,000. I said, I'm not going to assign, I'm not going to approve the, this assignment. So the Miami Dolphins players like sent me a lawsuit letter that I was tortiously interfering with their contract to sell their business. And I'm like, well, the, I said, I met with the teacher and the locksmith. Have you ever had a smoothie store? No. Well, how much do you need to make to pay the rent? I don't know. Well, we're going to do more. Well, how, why are you going to do more than the Miami Dolphins players? Well, they yeah. weren't here. They had 16 year olds running it. Okay. But, and we're going to be here and we're the owners. So we won't be absent owners. I go, okay. That could get you some more money. And we have relationships with the school systems, blah, blah, blah. Guess how long. So what I ended up doing with the lawsuit is I said, okay, I'll approve the assignment, but you're going to put the 66 in escrow because this locksmith and his wife are not going to make it six months. They made it less than three months. And then those guys came back in and fulfilled their lease. But, you know, they called me crying because we should have listened to you. So sometimes you can do everything to try to protect the people. But my point to them was, why do you think you're, it, it was the business was the flaw, right? And the rent, like the, I, they were in a high rent district for me, for my property, which I was getting from other uses that could afford to pay it. I said, this is not the use. It was just too narrow of a category. You're not going to make yeah. enough money selling smoothies to be in this shopping center. There's a million other shopping centers, go open a smoothie where the rent is half. But in this property, it's that's why it's not working. And they just, some, you know, they get tunnel vision on the American dream, which I love and being optimistic, which we talked about, but you have to be realistic because you could lose your life savings like they did. Oh, for sure. And then, I mean, the, the similar, and I can draw back on the story that we talked about regarding the bakery. Like when I first started, you know, several months of working with them, I was like, okay, so like, you're going to be selling, you know, baked goods, like bread and whatever else. And I asked them, how much, how much does it cost to make a piece of bread for you? And they didn't have that, that number. And I asked them, okay, well, how much would it cost for you to deliver? Cause they were talking about deliveries and stuff. Have you thought about what that's going to look like as far as delivery vehicles, insurance, and all these other things that go along with what you're trying to do. And they hadn't thought of any of this. And I was like, well, how do you know what you're going to price everything at? If you don't understand that, because you're, you're not going to be able to cover your expenses. So you have to price the products based on what it costs to produce, what, 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 uh, you know, the cost of, of hiring people is going to be. Cause even if you are working in your business, you're the one who's, you know, it, you're, it, that's a cost, right? Cause you yourself are allocating time towards making that business a success. And if you want to eventually scale, you have to be able to replace your time within that business. And so a lot of times people just don't think about that. And, and, and again, like you said, you, you want to help them fulfill the American dream. However, you don't want it to become an, a nightmare. And a lot of times it does become a nightmare for a lot of people. So uh, I think that the information that you shared is going to help a lot more people that are maybe considering going down that path before they, they do that, they do the research on the front end to make sure it's not going to become that. So, yeah, the most important thing I would say, especially uh, being on the GC side of things is do your research, like research, research, read, 
call people, ask, uh, you know, the one down the street, like you said, smoothie, uh, a smoothie mart, like just call them and say, Hey, what, what are you doing? They may not tell you, they might direct you where that you can figure that out, but they may not tell you the prices, but still try. Cause, um, I can only tell you so much on the GC side and how much it's going to cost and stuff like that. And even direct you to help you with financing. But if you don't have all your business numbers in line, you're, you're not going to make it and it could, could fail. So, yeah. but yeah. And, and, and some of the, you know, some of the quotes that, cause again, what Jeff and I were just talking about this today, he was going to meet yeah. with, with a potential client today. And, you know, a lot yeah. of the clients that he meets with are just shocked when, when they, when they go with these, these build out costs, it's like, wait, you're, you're telling me it's going to cost $200,000 to, to make this space ready for my use. It's like, I mean, that that's on the low end. If you're talking a restaurant, you know, if some of those yeah. restaurants, especially if you talk about, you know, 3000, 4000 square foot restaurants, you could be talking way more than that, especially if they don't have the components, like you mentioned, the grease strap, the hood, you know, all the different components that you need a restaurant to function in order to be a be able to get your licensing and whatever else. And if you want a liquor license, that's another thing, right? It's an additional thing. So a lot of expenses. Yeah. And the, uh, so what are some of the, the pitfalls you see like investors make when they're actually investing in retail properties? Some of the most, the biggest mistakes I see that investors make is they focus on the price per square foot that would be lower than replacement value. And they don't focus on the market and what the rents are. I literally get probably one to two calls a week with someone saying, I found this great deal. It's 50 bucks a square foot and replacement value is 200 a square foot. And then I say, oh, great, where is it? And then they tell me the submarket, and I am familiar with the submarket, And I'm like, well, the reason it's that low is because there's 30 shopping centers around it and they're 50% vacant. So I would much rather buy a property at 600 a square foot if it was the only shopping center around for three miles, right? Yeah. Because then what happens is, is you buy it and you think you got this great deal and now you can't lease it. And income is the name of the game. So yeah. that is the number one. They, the, people think that when, when, when they're investing product knowledge they deem product knowledge to be the property. And I say, it's the market. It's the market. It's the market. It's the market. We, I bought a strip club and turned it into a strip center a few years ago. And I was competing against three other people that were bigger companies, richer, more experienced. And we ended up buying the property on spec because the community was was outlawing strip clubs. So strip club closes. It was two acre, two and a half acres, I think. And um, we bought it on spec. We paid 3.4 million. My three competitors, they all capped out at 3.1. And one of them came up to me at a shopping center conference a month later and said, you paid 300 grand too much. And I, I, I got a little scared. I, I like my, my heart fell to my stomach. I'm thinking, gosh, I hope I didn't, right? And it was yeah. me and another partner. But I knew we weren't sure what we were going to do. We The goal was to do two ground leases. And we had a lot of people interested. We had Wawa, Trader Joe's. We had all these people interested. We ended up building an 11,000 square foot shopping center because the numbers, even though I had never built anything in my life, my partner's like, I'll help you. Um, we built an 11,000 square foot shopping center. The NOI of that deal today is 680. Wow. Nice. So 
we, it, 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 but here, the reason why I knew we could pay three, four was I was, I'm very good friends with all of the people in my submarket, all of my competitive leasing agents. If anytime they need something, I help them if I mm -hmm. can, right? If we're competing against, if we're competing for a tenant, then we, you know, we don't discuss that. But if they call and say, hey, have you talked to, you know, Starbucks on your deal? I said, no, I can't do Starbucks. They want to drive through. I can't do it. But I did talk to them, you know, and, and what I, this is what I quoted, right? So, so we're, we share a lot of information. Well, I had found out that a specific corporate tenant had just renewed a 5,000 square foot lease at 50 triple net. I thought the market was 40, but by getting that information that it was a renewal, corporate tenant, and the building was behind an out parcel. So big rent, higher than I thought, big square footage, corporate lease, behind no visibility. So I said to my partner, I am solid with my 40 triple net. We ended up getting, as, as you can figure out, you know, the math over 60. So, uh, but these guys, my competitors didn't have those relationships and they probably underwrote the rents at 30 or 35. So this is why it's so important to that, that the product knowledge when you're investing, sure, you need to know about, you know, the, the conditional assessment of the property, of course, but it's way more. If you're going to, you know, that's going to, that conditional assessment about the roof and the part, you know, there's three or four things, right? What's really important for the next 10 years of ownership or three years of ownership is the market. Is the market expanding? Like, you know, down the street from this property that I'm, I, I own three shopping centers on this street where I bought the strip club. I started buying in that market because I read the paper one day and found out that the college was, had a plan to double their enrollment in 10 years. I put down the paper and I started going up and down the street calling owners, you want to sell? You want to sell? You want to sell? And people were like, you were so early on that. You know, read the newspapers. Yeah, no, and and I think that's super important what you just said because I think it's very, I don't know to say it's easy, but 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 doing the math, like the there's models out there. You can plug in numbers into a model and it'll it'll tell you pretty much whatever you want it to tell you. But really where what you're talking about is is the assumptions or the story behind that, you know, that that the math essentially. And we talked to Eileen uh Prack, who's an investor in in San Francisco, and we were talking about that that exact that exact same thing is the assumptions behind whatever it, the, the 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 calculations are. And so when you know that the information through market knowledge and reading the newspaper, your assumptions shift because now it's like, oh, I know definitively that this piece of data that I'm going to be inputting into this financial calculation is valid because I just verified it with something just down the street. Whereas if you're a, you know, a large corporate entity and you're probably looking at a hundred different deals, you're not really going to be doing that legwork, or maybe you just don't have the connection in that local market to really determine that that's actually the case. And so, you know, I think that if, if I were to draw a kernel of, 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 of insight from that, it's, it's that, you know, these types of this, this information that you garner through being in the market and really engaging with the people within it, I think will will impact your assumptions, which then will convert into, you know, the analysis piece for you. So let me just say this. I've never done myself a financial model in my entire life. Mm -hmm. nice. Now, have I given the pieces to someone who's done it? Sure. 
have I, do I know how to read an Argus and can I, you know, use an Argus to an, analyze a property? Sure. But that deal was a back of the napkin all the way. It was me and my partner. And I said, it's 3.4. I think I can get 40. I'm confident I can get 40. And we pulled the trigger, you know, and it was back of the nap. There was absolutely no financial analysis done on that deal. And it's one of my best deals in my career. No, I, I and that's yeah. and that's so important to hear people say that because I can't I mean, there's a lot of information out there saying, oh, like if you just get the right financial model, if you just get, you know, this little tool to be able to help you calculate your these opportunities, you'll be able to get these, you know, you know, you'll be able to ensure your success long term. But in reality, that's not the case. Really, it's it's the back end piece, which is the assumptions you draw. And and I've read several books uh, from from successful developers across the nation, and they're they a lot of them pretty much say if you can't do the math on the back of a napkin, it's probably not worth you pursuing. Because you know if you're starting finagling with the numbers and and trying to make you know sense of everything, then you know you're 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 running the risk of really you know getting caught naked when the tide goes out. So it's one of those things that uh, I think is important for us to kind of delineate. That's awesome. So when you're talking yeah. about, you know, we, we've talked about the, 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 the you know, shopping setting and shopping center investing. Obviously, a big piece of that is in a multi-tenant center. It's the tenant mix. So could you tell us a little bit about how important tenant mix is to a center? And then maybe how do you target certain uses in order to maximize the ecosystem, essentially? Sure. So absolutely tenant mix is crucial. When I, I bought one of my first shopping centers I bought uh, after I left Terra Nova, I found sales are important, understanding the sales of the tenant. So in the tenant interviews, the seller had no tenant sale information. And I was talking to a sub guy, sub, sub shop guy and a local. And I said, so Harry, you know, a typical sub shop does like Subway does three to 400 grand in sales per year. Do you do around that? He goes, oh, no, I do triple that. I'm like, excuse me? And he goes, no, I do triple that. I go, you do 1.2 million and you're in 600 square feet. He goes, yeah, about that. And I absolutely didn't believe him. I thought he was smoking crack. Mm-hmm. And then we buy the deal and there are 47 people in line every day at the sub shop. And I had no other restaurants. I'm like, I call Panera. Panera goes, no, I don't want to go there. I go, let me just tell you something. <laughs> I have a sub guy <laughs> that's doing 1.2 million in 600 square feet. I think you want to come take a look. And so Panera is in my center. I have six restaurants in that center now. All because a little sub guy showed me something. I, I thought I knew the market. I knew about the college. I didn't know about all the daytime population around my property. I didn't know about the hospital that brought the people like now that I buy the prop now that after I bought the property and I started spending time, I kept seeing scrubs, scrubs, scrubs. Where are these people coming from? Oh, there's a a hospital three miles away. They come here to eat. So, so, so that's how you, you identify and observe what is working in your property and build on that. So right now in my 42,000 square foot center, I have $16 million of restaurant sales. So I may have an unanchored strip center, but I have an anchored strip center because I have a $14 million, six restaurants, right? And that all came from the understanding of what was going on in the market that I had no clue when I bought the center. 
Uh, fast forward to, I bought that in 08. So in 2020, December, uh, September, October, I'm like, you know, we're all reading, we're all watching the news, reading the paper, you know, we've been, you know, Florida opened up in May. So we were back to work. I was canvassing on May 28th, 2020, but you know, that we were, st the world was still, still in a world of hurt. And yeah. I, am reading about the canceled birthday parties and the canceled graduation parties and the canceled day camps and all this stuff. So I said, you know, I have five vacancies at the time. I think I had four or five vacancies in my property. And I said, you know, I think, and, and you're reading about the, the shipping uh, delays. And I said, I think Christmas is going to be off the charts and there's no to more toys or us. What are these parents going to do? They're going to over buy for their kids because their kids have had a disappointing year and there's nowhere for them to go shop. So I said, I'm going to go find a toy store and I'm going to offer a free rent deal for, uh, for Christmas because I want to bring toys into my property because I believe toys are going to be on fire for 2020. So I look up toy stores in South Florida. I called, you know, 15 to 20 of them. I went and saw a bunch of them. I DM'd some of them. And there was one hobby store that had two locations. They were not on Instagram. So I went on, I, I rarely do this. I went on their website and it says, contact us. And I filled out all this, this stuff. And I said, I own a shopping center in the submarket. You've got two locations. How about a rent free for, for October, November, December? Come and be in my shopping center if you have merchandise. Be a pop-up. So like a week later, they call, they go, we just saw this on our website. You know, what's the catch? I go, there's no catch. I, and I told them what I just told you. And I said, I think toys are going to be big. I think there's going to be supply chain issues and there's no more Toys R Us. So they said, we're interested, but they didn't believe me. So they came to the property. I said, I've done this before with other tenants. Go talk to the University of Miami hurricane apparel guy. I did that with him, you know, a few years ago. So they, they believed me. We signed a lead. We signed a three month deal, October, November, December, no rent. They had to take it as is. They had to give me insurance and they had to give me a thousand dollar deposit and they had to have merchandise. Like I went and saw their other two locations to make sure that they could merchandise the space. It was 1200 square feet. In October, they did 60,000. In November, they did one. 30. And in December, I think they did 190. They signed a three-year lease. Like they said, what, what's the catch? I said, there's no catch, but the ulterior motive is I want you to do great and sign a long-term lease, which they did. And now they're my tenant uh, and they've signed a three-year lease at not all the way at market rents, but I would say within 20% of market rents because retail, it's really, really hard in strip centers to have retail only tenants. You know, you have the, the hair salon, the personal services, right? Hair yeah. salon, nail salon, insurance office, and restaurants. That's what fills shopping centers these days. But to have, I, in, I have a, I had a cell phone store. I had Sprint, and then they merged with T-Mobile and they moved out. I have a battery store. I have the, the Hurricane Apparel guy, the University of Miami. He, he, we did a pop-up with him in 1,100. Now he's in 2,800 square feet. So to find a retail-only store is hard but fabulous addition to the property. So that goes to the tenant mix, understanding what's going on in the market and how does it help? Like people, the day, the call of the day, every day, seven days a week is vape. I would never do a vape store. 
never. And someone just asked me on Twitter the other day, you know, would you do a vape store? I said, I, I would never do a vape store. I mean, first of all, I just don't like the people that go to the vape, and they're, but they'll, they'll pay double rent. I said, I don't care. I, I'm not going to do that because I think it would hurt a sell in the future. It hurts refi. It doesn't bring the right people. I want, I want the toy store with their $1,200 remote control. It's a remote control hobby store is what it is. So it's $1,200. Who is coming to my center that's going to buy a $1,200 remote control car? I want that guy there because he's going to go buy five subs. Oh, yeah. 100%. No, yeah. and, and I love the idea of doing some sort form of pop-up store, in particular in centers that, you know, I imagine when you buy some of these centers, they may be underperforming and that they don't have, they have a lot of vacancy. And so in order to attract a retail tenant, it may be wise for you to consider doing something like that because it's like, okay, well, we can get the, the space filled, which brings foot traffic. And as more foot traffic comes in, then obviously that benefits the entire center as a whole. So that's that's a really unique insight. And and also kind of another insight that I think is phenomenal is is, is the use that's going to be in that center. You know, I've, I've analyzed deals for clients on the retail shopping center side, and we've seen deals that have like great returns, huge cap rate or low, high, uh, high cap rate. But, you know, there's a church in the center, for example, you know, so that type of use tends to indicate that, you know, they were having issues leasing the space to begin with. And, you know, you get you get that type of use. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, having a church in, in the center. But it, again, it's it just indications of, OK, they must have been having some issues as far as trying to really fill the space. And so, you know, getting a feel for what those uses are and and, you know, making sure that the uses kind of complement each other, I think, is is very uh, unique insight that you provided. So churches, I never do leases with churches for two reasons. One, they they're parking hogs on the, on the days they're open. And two, if you had to evict one, you'd be on the front page of the newspaper. So mm -hmm. I don't want to evict a church. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and my favorite shopping centers to buy are 100% lease shopping centers because the rents are too low. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah, oh. definitely. That's a smart strategy. Yeah, so for I, sure. You know, go ahead. No, that was it. Uh, no, that was it. Uh, no, so I saw that you and you talked about Twitter and you named a couple other social medias. I just wanted to ask is like how has that helped you being on social media helped you grow your business and your reach for your business so a few ways um it's obviously helped the teaching business because the more value i give on you know tricks or, or tips on how to lease space fast or i show case studies or i'm walking and doing a video showing canvassing, those leasing directors are like, she really canvasses. She puts her money where her mouth is. I don't think my team is canvassing. Let me go hire her to come canvas with my people. So the more things that I kind of post about uh, tip, tip, whether it's investment tips or leasing tips, people will call me and maybe say, do you want to be a partner in this deal? Do you want, can you come and look at this deal and advise on the deal? Do you want to come train our leasing team? If, you know, if they don't, what Grant Cardone says, if they don't know you, they can't flow you, right? So, so just having exposure out in the community and sharing, like, so I never would, I don't say, I don't post my shopping center and say for lease, but very rarely will I post a listing. I don't use social media for that. I use social media to add value. So on LinkedIn, I just did a post, like I, one of my posts I did recently is, a lot of my students say, how often can I follow up? You know, I don't want to call the guy every day. And I and so I, I put a post on LinkedIn that said, circling back, checking in and following up is not adequate follow-up 
techniques. The way to follow up is you can follow up every time you have something of value to add to the prospect. So if you met with the prospect and you showed him space and then now it's crickets, you know, maybe send him an article about something in his industry or send him something so-and-so just opened down the street or the hospital just announced an expansion. Every time you can send the prospect something of value that adds to the conversation, that's how often you can follow up. So when I post something like that on LinkedIn, I'm helping my leasing community. Those are my peers because the smarter they are, the more rents we're all going to get. Right. Yeah. And so I want to take the 35 years of what I've learned by doing it and share it with my folks. I have with in Cleveland, I took a seven, my client has a 17% occupied center and I am using Instagram for, you know, to show how I'm prospecting in Cleveland. I want a hamburger place. I, I, I will use Instagram and I will tag all of the entrepreneurs or as many entrepreneurs as I can in Cleveland so that that entrepreneurial community knows that we will do very aggressive leases. We have all-stars coming up in at the time six months. We want to fill, we want to make Cleveland look good. Who wants to come try out space and be there for all-stars? And I pretty much used Instagram for the last seven months. And my Instagram is blown up because of it. And I'm and I'm using it for prospecting and I'm DMing people on it. So I'm prospecting with Instagram. Then those people go, who's this girl? Then they go to my Instagram. Oh, she's in Cleveland, but she lives in Fort Lauderdale, but she owns shopping centers. So that's, I, I use it as a communication tool and a value add tool. So that's how I'm using all of those platforms. That's great advice. Yeah, I know. And, and, and the value add piece is huge because I feel like, again, if you become that person that, that provides value to people, you know, that people like to follow and people like to engage and people like to do business with people they like and trust. And I think being active on these mediums and understanding that, you know, it, it, whether if you're doing it for a, you know, just for the purposes of generating business, maybe you'll be able to do that. But in reality, what, it, what you're building is a personal brand. And the personal brand, in my opinion, is the most important thing that you can you can control because you have a personal brand, whether you like it or not. We interviewed Spencer Burton from Adventures of CRE, and he had taken a class, you know, at, at Cornell when he was going there. And he, he talked about that. Exactly. He said, look, you, you search your name on Google like it's something's going to come up and either you control the narrative or someone else will control the narrative. So, you know, taking control of that through the, through social media or, and even interacting, like, like if you, if you start meetups or anything like that, you control the narrative if you do that. So that's some great advice. Yeah, that's awesome. absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to, to, to ask you, and this is something we ask all our guests is we're all pretty voracious readers. You know, I love reading books on, you know, different types of, of concepts, personal development, real estate, uh, really anything. I love biographies. I'm huge into biographies. I wanted to kind of ask you, what's the most impactful book you've ever read? And it's not doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, pertaining to real estate, but it's really one of those books maybe that kind of just triggered something in you that put, put you on a particular path. The most impactful book, I'm looking at my book bookcase, but I know the answer is, um, and now the name of it just escaped me because I'm looking at all the, those book club names. Um, Mark Victor Hansen, and Jack Canfield, um, it'll come to me. <laughs> Crap. Uh, I can't think of the name of it, but this is the reason why, and it'll come to me. So the reason it's the most impactful is in the book, 
it talks about doing one, 101 goals. So this was before the bucket list. And I had gone to a book writing conference where they led the conference and they got up on stage and talked about this. And they said, you need to set, write down a list of 101 things that you want to do before you, or in the next 10 years, it wasn't before you die. In the next 10 years, what's 101 things you want to accomplish? And he said from the stage and in the book, it says it'll you know, take you 10 or 15 minutes. Well, that's not true. <laughs> so it probably took me a couple uh, weeks and the first 20 or 30 were very easy. And the next 30 were not hard, but not easy. The last 30 started to get difficult, but the last 11 were impossible. Like I'm done, I can't think of anything else. And when, when you get there at that point, you're now gonna be super creative and you're gonna put things that you didn't even know you wanted to do, but cause you're just kind of pulling stuff out of the air. And the two things I had put on that last 11 was be a college professor and live in a foreign country with my kids before they turn 16. And neither of those did I think were ever possible. And because why I couldn't be a college professor is at the time that I wrote the list in 2004, I didn't have my college degree. When I left Florida State, I left with three incompletes because I was sick and I had mono and I was in the hospital. And of course, I was going to go back that summer and finish those three incompletes. And then I got a job and I started working and I never went back. And um, so in 2004, I, I ended up getting the degree in 2005. That's when I left Terranova and I had took a year off. I semi-retired. I said, I'm going to go back and finish those three classes and get my degree. So there was no way I could be a college professor because I didn't have my degree. And, you know, how could I just not work and live in a foreign country with my kids who are now at this point, like, I think they were 12 and nine. And um, within, so that was 2004, I think in 2010, I lived in Spain for Florida State and I taught the summer abroad class. And I did it three years in a row. So every summer for three years, I went and lived in, in Valencia, Spain with my boys before they turned 16. And I was a college professor teaching intro to real estate and professional selling. And um, that was the most impactful book of my life. I'm going to have to look it up because I think, I'm having, I, I, this is what happened. I looked at when it you're quick. Six, is, is, is it the power of focus? Is that what the one? Yes, is? the power of I knew it was a P. It's the power of focus. And this is brain fart at 61 years old. So it's the power of focus. And I, you know, we have we had the book club I for four years. You know, I've read I there's so many books I love, but the most impactful book was that because it changed my life because I lived in Spain with my boys every summer for three summers for you know over a month. And when you live in a foreign country and work in a foreign country and you have your kids and it, it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. So that exercise of doing the 101 goals, I would highly recommend for everyone knowing that the last 11 might just be something that changes your life. That's so awesome. No, I, I, that, that, I'm going to have to add that to the reading list. And, uh, it, you know, and, it, and it's so crazy to me, you know, how one idea within a book can change the way that you approach your life. 
I mean, I, I've said this many, many times. And every time I meet with someone, I always talk about the book that kind of did it for me was The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And, you know, I read that book and I was like, oh, wait, like if you want to be like the Richard Branson's or the Oprah Winfrey's or all these other people, all you have to do is start with small, consistent, positive action every day and let it add up over time. And I use that same logic. You know, I've written six books and I've you know been able to do all these different things. And that's all from, you know, writing 250 words to 500 words a day. That's to, you know, being consistent on social media, getting out there, interacting with people and, and building a brand. And that's all through those small, consistent actions. It doesn't happen overnight. But as, you, as everything starts compounding on top of each other, then it's like, oh, I don't have to put nearly as much effort as I did before. It's like starting a train, right? If as you start pushing a heavy, heavy, heavy train, you have so much effort and, and, and energy that you put into it. And initially, it doesn't seem like you're making a lot of progress. But as soon as that train starts going, there's very little, little push you have to make. And then all of a sudden, it can run through a brick wall and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So, you know, again... It, I just kind of want to echo what you said about, you know, the impact of that book, because, you know, that one idea for you changed your perspective on life and how you approach it and affected your decision making framework. And now it's it's led you to all these different things that you're doing right now. So that's awesome. I love that. I love Darren Hardy and I love the compound effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a phenomenal book. I, I, I give it I, I recommend it to everyone. And I've handed it out to several people. I was like, look, you, you need to read this because. You know, sometimes people get in their own way because they think of all these things they want to do and they don't really understand. They're like, oh, my gosh, how could I ever do that? When in reality, it's it's all about component parts. It's like break it down into small pieces and then eat one bite at a time. Like you can't eat an elephant, elephant in one bite, essentially. So um, that's awesome. So, Beth, uh, to round up the podcast, we, we greatly appreciate your time. I know how busy you are and you're always traveling around the country and doing all these cool things. So we do, we do definitely appreciate your time here. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you before we, 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 we close out is we have something known uh, as the CRE Treasure Chest. Essentially, it's a repository of resources that we make available to our, to our audience. And then, the, then we can provide, you know, helpful PDFs, Excel sheets, really anything you can, you can imagine. And so, you know, I, I wanted to give you an opportunity. What are you willing to contribute today? So I think... Uh... You tell me, I'm going to give you the two options. One is the question sheet mm -hmm. to qualify a prospect when they call in, or if you're trying to tenant rep them, either that one or the other sheet I have is, I think it's 27 things that retailers have said how they want to be contacted if you have a site. Okay. I mean, either one would be great. I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. a lot of people would gain value from regardless of the, of the content. How so. about if we just send you both? Wow. That's even better. Yeah. Yeah. Two, two is better than one, I say. That's there you awesome. Go. Well, we want to help everyone. So we'll, uh, we'll uh, get those two out to you. Awesome. Well, I greatly appreciate yeah. it, Beth. I know I know our audience greatly appreciates it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Raphael. Yeah. Uh, yeah sure. um, before we finalize here, how can people like reach out to you? I know when they're going to listen to this, they're going to want to contact you and maybe uh, try to get some advisory uh uh, tidbits from you and everything. So how would you like them to contact you? Probably either LinkedIn or Twitter, just under Beth Azor is the best. Oh, for okay. sure. Yeah. The yeah. canvas, the canvassing queen. Uh, and, and you'll yeah. see, you'll see Beth with a red suit. You know, it's, it's very uh, much a trademark of hers. So if you guys don't follow her on LinkedIn and all these other social platforms, I highly encourage you to do so. She really does provide a lot of value to the commercial real estate community. So 
Again, thank you all for tuning in today. If you guys are listening to this in an Apple podcast format, a Spotify format, we would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review. We've seen a significant uptick in our downloads as a result of you guys engaging with the podcast. So if you could do that, we would greatly appreciate it. If you guys are watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe to the channel. It greatly uh, helps with the YouTube algorithm and ensures more and more people can hear this message. So thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you all next time. 